Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 42, For My Name's Sake. Okay, so here it is. Here is our first Isaiah chapter. And we are going to be brave. We're not going to shrink from it. We're not going to place any difficult expectations upon ourselves to understand each and every line. We're not going to do that this go around. We're just going to find something of value, something that testifies of Jesus Christ, and we are going to cherish it. And why Why am I setting the bar so low. Why? I mean, it's not low, but you know what I mean. We're not going to try and become experts at Isaiah. Why am I setting low expectations? Because here's the dealio. Because we want to learn to love Isaiah, just like Nephi wanted us to. And when we lower our expectations, just like in real life with other people, we then can become easily pleased tolerant and we can even embrace the relationship and we want to form a relationship with the words of Isaiah. We're going to say, how do you do Isaiah? And we're going to walk away with a nugget from our budding relationship with him. So chapter 20 of 1 Nephi corresponds with the 48th chapter in Isaiah and it is the Lord addressing the house of Jacob or in other words, the house of Israel. He identifies them by name and also by their actions. He recognizes that they came forth out of the waters of baptism or conversion. They swore by the name of the Lord, or in other words, they made oaths to him, and they even make mention of him, but they do not do any of these things in truth or righteousness. They call themselves the holy city, but they're not firmly aligned with the Lord of hosts. And just that name and it being used in this context paints a picture for us. How silly for any of us to ever choose to not be aligned with the Lord of hosts, the Lord of too many to count, but referred to as the hosts of angels. How short-sighted of us to ever believe for a second that we may have a little more clout than him. But, you know, We all become delusional for a few seconds from time to time, don't we? The Lord then begins to reveal his ability to be all-knowing, omniscient, that he does know the end from the beginning. And because of this, he is able to lay all of the truths out before us, before we even need them, before they even happen. And why does he do this? Because he is omniscient. Because he is our creator and our upholder. He knows a thing or two about his creations. He knows our vulnerabilities and specifically addresses one of them here in verse 4. He knows we are obstinate. He knows that human nature, the fallen man, has a tendency to be stubborn. (laughs) To have a difficult time changing our opinions or our chosen course of action once our mind is set. So what does he do? He declared all things from the beginning. 
He did this also because he knows his creation so well. He knew we would have a difficult time attributing all things back to him because we can't see him because we must grow in our faith in him. So we have a tendency to contribute his glory and his power to things we can see, evidence that our brains can comprehend and prove. He knew his children would make idols, graven or molten, and place belief in what they can control, manipulate, or at the very least, see. And because of this vulnerability, we will fall short. We will not declare, or at the very least, hesitate to declare his word. We won't even recognize his efforts, or may I liken it to what may be more personal to us? We won't recognize his tender mercies, his workings in our lives. And even though he created us and declared it unto us from the beginning, his children of Israel, and please include yourself here, did not hear it or know it. But here is an illustration of the Lord's attributes of being merciful, full of grace, abundant in goodness, and slow to anger. He says, Nevertheless, for my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain from thee, that I cut thee not off. For mine own sake, yea, for mine own sake will I do this, for I will not suffer my name to be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another. I used to read these verses with an angry, authoritarian voice in my mind, but now I don't believe that is how they were said. My interpretation is this. I believe the Lord is saying, wait a minute. For you who take on my name, for your sake, we're going to slow things down. I'm going to control my anger. I'm going to refrain from you so I don't cut you off. I'm going to use time to help you figure this out. You've got to figure this out. That your graven images are not giving you strength. I am. You've got to straighten this out in your mind. Because this is my glory. And remember what the Lord says his work and his glory is. Found in Moses chapter 1 verse 39. His work and his glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. I love how in verse 10, it says that he has refined thee. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction because it is a reminder to me that my afflictions are not without purpose and that I am not forsaken by him in these moments, even when the opposite feels really true because it really can feel like you have been abandoned and forgotten. But what if you chose to believe that these are the moments, these really unpleasant, difficult, and defeating moments are exactly the moments in which he chooses you. The house of Israel in ancient days had evidence for this being true. It was a part of their history when the taskmasters were a heavy burden to bear in Egypt. When the intent by the Egyptians was to diminish their numbers, yet the numbers of the Israelites kept growing despite their afflictions. It was because the Lord chose them in that moment to extend his strength unto them. And finally, 
in verses 12 through 22, I see this as the Lord's pleading to us to trust him. He says, my hand laid the foundation of the earth. My hand spanned the heavens. I call unto them and they stand up together. And you know, we saw this evidence during his mortal ministry by calming the storm and withering the fig tree. The elements listen to him. He says that he has loved them, the house of Jacob, and will fulfill his words to them to trust him when it comes to Babylon or the Chaldeans. Trust in his strength. He reminds us to draw near to him. How he hasn't spoken in secret, but these truths have always been available to us. And can't you just hear him saying to us, relax and trust me. He'll teach us. He'll profit us. He'll lead us to the way we should go. The Lord counsels us, actually promises us that if the house of Jacob would have listened to his commandments, their peace would have been as a river. And in my mind, this brings up images of ever-flowing peace, peace that forges the way, peace that can break through the rock of tribulation and give nourishment along the way. Don't you want this peace? A peace like a river isn't a wimpy peace. It isn't afraid of things or need things to always be perfect and without tribulation. It is a peace with action. It is ever-flowing Sometimes it's a roaring peace, a peace that knows that it belongs and its presence is acceptable. It's a peace that gives nourishment to the land around it and therefore nourishment to those around us. And he says that their righteousness would have been like the waves of the sea, which I envision as our personal righteousness will give us strength, great heights, and power to beat against the shores or the barriers of mortality. That this righteousness of our communities and our nations will be our defenses against corruption as the waves prevent corruption from getting past the break. Have you sufficiently valued your obedient acts and your righteousness as being your protection of power and defense against the adversary. The Lord promises to the house of Jacob that their seed would have been as the sand and that their offspring would not have been cut off from him or destroyed before him. What beautiful promises of reassurance, of power and and gifts of fortitude we would receive if we listened to all of his commandments, even those pesky ones (laughs) of do not fear. Peace be unto you. Love thy neighbor and pray for your enemies. Chapter 20 leaves us with a call to action to flee Babylon and the Chaldeans and to, with a voice of singing, declare to the earth, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And here is proof of this reality, especially for ancient Israel. Remember, he led the children his namesake, out of Egypt, and they thirsted not. He led them through the deserts, and he caused water to flow from a rock when they needed it. And there is nothing more life-sustaining when in a desert than water. And he provided it, and so much more unto them. 
And what a beautiful time of year for us to take on the call of action, to flee Babylon and the Chaldeans. For us, with a voice of singing, declare to the world, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Can you hear the hope that the Lord desires you to have? Nephi did, and he desired his people to hear it as well. What a good God it is that we are children of. How patient and long-suffering and diligent he is unto us. For him to know our shortcomings and not strike us down when he grows tired of them. But instead, he gives us time to straighten ourselves out. And Nephi knew, he knew that his people would need to be reminded of these attributes. Being a people far away from home, but yet blessed and they're prospering, it would become easy to mistakenly contribute all of their blessings they were experiencing to their own strength and their own wisdom, or even to be swayed by the adversary to make graven images and contribute it all to a false god. Isn't it amazing that we as humans have this need to pay devotion to something, whether it be God, our own selves, or we make something to pay devotion to? It's in us. And I don't blame the Lord, whose work and glory it is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Such a unselfish purpose and mission. It is okay by me that he takes his time in redirecting his obstinate children and redirecting them back to him. And I know that in the culture I belong to, we don't make idols that we worship And so it's easy for us to mistakenly believe, hey, we got this. We can't relate. We don't know what you're talking about as far as these idols go. But not so fast. If we look at where our devotions and our loves lie, or consider what we define as being our powerful sources, we're going to find many altars of worship before them. Consider how protective we may become of our time, our riches, and our comforts. Notice what we contribute power and strength to. Is it our political affiliations, our sociological leanings, our favorite pastimes, our intellect, or logic over faith? Can't we become obstinate when we are asked to change one of these things, to change our mind about these passions, or to change our course? Doesn't it become difficult to part with such things, believing that they are ours, that they are right? that they have been earned by us or developed by us and we deserve them? We mistakenly believe that these things bring us peace and these things bring us power and these things protect us and these things prosper us. When in reality, only the obedience to God of all creation, the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, can give us any lasting portion of any of it. If you were Nephi, If you spent your days testifying and persuading your people to know their Redeemer, all the while knowing that they are eventually going to falter, can you think of more beautiful descriptions of our Redeemer who is inviting us to trust and rely upon Him? So tender, yet so majestic. So be honest, you like Isaiah a little better now, don't you? You got this. No fear. Thank you, Isaiah. 
Sister Scriptorians, take a look at your idols and see how you can rely more upon the Lord of hosts. You are his namesake and he is willing to give you peace like a river and waves of righteousness. You are his work in his glory. You are his namesake. Before you came, he declared it. The Lord has done all of this for you.